Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top compliance commentators. The Everything Compliance gang includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, the founder and publisher of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, Sarah Haddon, the publisher and owner of Corporate Compliance Insights, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London. In each episode, we take a look at various topics of interest in the compliance arena. We also have shouts and rants at the end of each episode. I know you will enjoy it. This episode begins a special two-part series where we take a look at the impact of the Trump administration on compliance over the past year. We have done this now since the Trump administration or Trump was elected president back in November of 2016, and it's been one of the consistently favorite episodes of the listeners. Uh, In this part one, myself, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen all give thoughts on different areas of compliance. Matt Kelly takes a look at compliance under the SEC, and I pose to him the question, has Jay Clayton actually done anything? Uh, Jay Rosen uh, goes from the Benchkowski memo to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs in 2019 and beyond and considers what all of this might mean for the compliance practitioner. It's a very insightful look. And then I take a look at the three releases uh, or policy statements uh, that came from two from the Department of Justice and one from OFAC in the context of compliance programs. So we had the Criminal Division's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 guidance. We had the Antitrust Division's uh, Corporate Compliance Programs for Antitrust Investigations and Enforcement Actions. And we had OFAC uh, issuing a compliance framework. So significant policy announcements, two from the DOJ and one from OFAC for your consideration. Rants and shout-outs follow. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Matt Kelly, what have has been on your mind in terms of uh, enforcement over the past year from the Trump administration? Yeah, Tom. Well, I have focused my thoughts specifically on the SEC and what has it been doing these days for the last year and um, has it actually done anything? So the mixed verdict is naturally uh, both yes and no. Um, We can talk about two different things and I'll walk people through it. We can talk about enforcement from the SEC, and we can talk about policy changes from the SEC. And I'm going to start with enforcement. Um, First, it is worth noting that for a long time, before this fiscal year, 2019, that just ended for the SEC at the end of September, uh, before that year, the SEC had been under a hiring freeze for several years um, that hit the enforcement division especially hard as Enforcement attorneys went to private big law firms and made gobs of money, and their jobs were not replaced. Um, So that hiring freeze had kept enforcement a bit tamped down for the first several years of the Trump administration. And now that a hiring freeze has been lifted, and now I think we're going to see more enforcement, um, 
There is also, some people might have seen a headline recently about a study from the Cornerstone Research Institute, SEC enforcement actions in 2019 were 10-year high. Mathematically, that is true, but for compliance officers, corporate ethics and compliance officers, uh, it's worth noting that a lot of that activity stems from investment advisors who were self-reporting because for them, if they self-reported, they would get a much better chance of escaping any penalties. So it's a bit misleading to talk about 10-year high in SEC enforcement, especially for corporate compliance officers who are not in the investment advisor world. Um, that said, I would, in my humble estimation, say I don't know if we've seen a lot of SEC enforcement around corporate corruption, but the cases that we have seen, there's been a steady stream of enforcement actions related to the FCPA or accounting fraud where poor internal controls were the big issue. And those are worth looking at. They have been worth looking at. And Tom, you and I have talked many times on our other podcasts about them. Um, so like this idea that the SEC would stop enforcing FCPA compliance, like, clearly, no, that is not true. Um, on the other hand, the lesson that compliance officers should pay more heed to accounting policy and internal control issues. Yes, that is true. You need to because those things keep turning up in SEC enforcement cases that are relevant to our crowd. Um, so I look at some of the the cases that we have seen over the last 12 months or so, Quad Graphics, Juniper Networks, Microsoft. Um, Tom, I think you and I have talked about all three of those cases in depth at some point over the year. Um, I think those are great fact patterns to illuminate points about oversight or documentation or exercising control over your subsidiaries. Um, so a lot of that, you know, is it a lot of SEC action? I don't know, but it's informative. It's instructive for compliance officers who want to think about where should I be looking at now to figure out what might trip up my company in the future. Um, Myelin Labs is another one that came about, I want to say, at the very end of fiscal 2019. So it was, I think it was late September. Um, I love that case because it was all about Mylan's legal team withholding material information from the finance team. So the finance team was not disclosing things to investors, and it was a disclosure violation. But what was really so interesting about that case was the SEC describing the quarterly meeting of executives at Milan, um, their compliance or risk committee, basically saying that was a control. And like any control, it maybe would, wouldn't work, or maybe it was designed poorly. And that whole concept of the control being a group of people, but it's still a control and it might be flawed like any other control, like, you know, blocking payments to illegal, uh, suspicious third parties or something like that. The idea of understanding what a control is and how you should think about it, that is a very interesting point. And that's the sort of thing that compliance officers need to think about if you want to understand where corporate risk management and, frankly, your career are going to be going in the 2020s. It's anticipating issues like that. Um, so that's my enforcement part of my uh, dissertation here today, that I thought that the SEC over the last year provided us a steady diet of interesting cases to talk about and things to think about for effective compliance going forward. Um, now I wanted to pivot 
to the policymaking stuff the SEC has done over the last year, because I think that's a different story. Um, Policymaking has moved probably much more slowly than we would have expected or cynics would have feared in, say, 2017. That's good or bad, depending on your political views or what you think the SEC should be doing. Um, For example, clearly, the uh, regulator for audit firms, the PCAOB, like that agency was a basket case, and it is the SEC's responsibility. So Jay Clayton at the SEC, the chairman, he had to spend a lot of time getting distracted, trying to straighten out the PCAOB. I would say that is probably still a ways from being a straight and functional agency anyways. Um, there was the cybersecurity breach that the SEC had suffered where Clayton had to think about that. Um, so he's always had a lot of distractions from what I think he really wanted to do with his regulatory reform agenda, the agenda that he has pushed on regulatory reform um, and policy reform has generally been, again, much more relevant to investment advisors than compliance officers. So rules on private offerings or repealing protections from the Volcker rule or fiddling with the definition of accredited investors. Some of that stuff is passed. Some of it is pending. A lot of compliance officers would say that's got nothing to do with me. And you're right, because you worry about different stuff. Um, So here's what I think is most interesting for policymaking that is relevant to ethics and compliance officers. Notice when the SEC passed new rules for proxy advisory firms, which the proxy advisory firms did not like, they sued the SEC. Uh, saying that the SEC had not done sufficient cost-benefit analysis of its rule. And that dynamic of outsiders suing the SEC over rules they did not like, which conservatives started during the Obama administration, well, now we're seeing it with uh, liberal groups doing the same during the Trump administration. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I think that Jay Clayton is in a difficult position because he's got a lot of stuff he wants to do. The Trump administration might end one year from now, and if he pushes forward with it recklessly, he's going to get sued, and then the stuff doesn't happen anyways. So I don't know where he's going to get out on that, but um, that's a dynamic for policymaking that you have to think about. And I will give you one more specific example, then I'm done. Um, When you look at the whistleblower award program and the reforms that he had proposed 18 months ago, and had taken very little action until suddenly they were going to move forward with it in October, including a cap on large whistleblower awards. Whistleblower lobby made it crystal clear to Jay Clayton behind the scenes, you pass that cap, we're going to have you sued. And then he backpedaled away from that, and he's delayed a final adoption, and now he's saying that the cap actually wasn't a cap, and he resents that people called it a cap, but it was a salutary moment for or me anyways, as I gain new insight into their concerns. So he's looking for some way to get this whistleblower reform done without upsetting people who might then haul the SEC into court. That dynamic of trying to figure out how to make this work politically, where the outsiders will delay this with federal litigation, like we're going to see that over and over. It just started in 2019. I think we're going to see more of it in 2020. And so I will be curious to see what some of the other issues, such as repealing Sarbanes-Oxley protections or, I don't know, executive compensation clawbacks or whatever else the uh, 
commission might try and cook up in 2020. Like, how is he going to do that when he's got this outside litigation cloud looming over the horizon that might kind of fire off a bolt of lightning at any moment? It's already happened once, might happen again. What does this mean for all of us? I don't know. But uncertainty and indecision is the uh, bread and butter of pundits like me. So I'm, I'm all for where we are right now. But Tom, that's, that's what I got. So Matt, the, uh, I think you and I have really looked at this recent series of dance steps by Clayton around the whistleblower program. And one of the things that you and I have both speculated on is who's the constituency for changes to the whistleblower program. Some of the other regulatory changes that you've articulated that either have been implemented or uh, at least uh, have been articulated, uh, I think there's an identifiable constituency uh, that wants to remove a regulation, that wants to uh, loosen up uh, perhaps the abilities uh, of companies for investment dollars or at least raise caps on reporting requirements. Uh, Any further insights into who the constituency to cut back whistleblower awards might be? I I don't know that there is a constituency for that, naturally. Um, You know, the the companies that might have a serious fraud that, uh, you know, could lead to a massive settlement where a whistleblower would get a hundred million or more or something like that. That's an extremely small number. And, um, I just, I don't see that there is a natural constituency. Um, I think the rest of those whistleblower reforms are actually quite sensible and reasonable. So I'm glad Jay Clayton is doing this because this is the one thing that's stuck in people's craw. Like, get over that and pass the rest of it. And I think on the whole, it's a good idea. Um, But the key issue for these cost-benefit analysis points of attack on litigation would be, what is the benefit to capping whistleblower awards that is so great it is worth the cost to investors if they are going to hear about fewer large scams that might harm them? Um, You know, it gets very complicated to do these cost-benefit analyses, which are required under the Administrative Procedures Act, and trying to demonstrate that the benefit of deregulation is so much better than the costs to companies, but there is a benefit to investor protection, and now they would bear the cost if there is less protection. How do we figure this out? Very difficult to do. Um, Jay Clayton has somewhat of a uh, bet noir, I would guess, on the commission with the Democrat uh, Commissioner Robert Jackson, who is an academic, who does really thorough analyses of his own and then drops them like a stink bomb into these SEC plans uh, where he can come up with cost benefit analyses that show the policy proposal doesn't work. Um, And in fact, the Robert Jackson had been planning to leave the commission first in, in September then maybe in December. And now lately, his students at New York University at NYU have actually petitioned him to please stay on the commission because his work is so important. They can live without him teaching so long as he keeps his job. So I don't know when he is going to move on from the commission, uh, Commissioner Jackson, but we've got these dueling cost-benefit analyses arguments that that's what's tying up some of these proposals in knots, and um, we're going to see more of that in 2020. So, Jay Rosen, what have you seen over the past year from the Trump administration 
around uh, compliance that uh, has really uh, interested you the most? Thanks, Tom. Um, as we all know, earlier this spring, the Department of Justice released the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the 2019 guidance document. And this has been designed to supplant or rather supplement the principles of federal prosecution of business organizations in the Justice Manual, formerly the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and provide assistance to prosecutors in thinking through charging decisions. The 2019 guidance states that this document is meant to assist prosecutors in making informed decisions as to whether and to what extent a corporation's compliance program was effective at the time of the offense and is effective at the time of a charging decision or resolution for purposes of determining the appropriate resolution. The 2019 guidance poses three fundamental questions that prosecutors must begin their analysis with. First, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Second, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? In other words, is the program being implemented effectively? And finally, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? This expands and fleshes out the concepts of the Bensikowski memo that he laid out last fall when he announced the DOJ's use of corporate monitors going forward. When you read the 2019 guidance in conjunction with its clarion antecedent, the Bensikowski memo released in October 2018, you'll see critical elements for companies that they should include in their corporate compliance programs to help them avoid a monitorship. These include <clears throat> making investments to improve corporate compliance programs, tightening internal controls as well as program testing, and to demonstrate the prevention of detection of similar misconduct in the future. And finally, timing is a key differentiator between these two elements of guidance. The previous Bensikowski memo focused on expectations during an FCPA investigation or enforcement action, while the new 2019 guidance focuses on what you should do before you get to that point. As many people have noted in the past, the word culture is used predominantly through this new 2019 guidance. It appears in topic areas spanning from policies and procedures to leadership from tone at the top, starting with the board of directors down to senior management, all the way through middle management. It also emphasizes creating measuring and improving culture. Moreover, a clear message insists that an organization needs to actually assess its culture. Culture needs to be represented and embedded in corporate values and not simply through squishy social science concepts. Simply put, culture is a foundational internal control that guides the behavior of employees. Without this internal control, all other rules, regulations, policies, and controls will be less than effective. The updated 2019 DOJ guidance should be viewed as a treasure trove of opportunity because it provides transparency and detail into how prosecutors are going to be thinking and perhaps more importantly, how they are going to be directed to think about an organization's ethics and compliance obligations. And finally, whether companies under investigation are going to receive credit at the end of the day. The 2019 guidance not only sets out minimum standards pointing to the lengthy discussion of culture, literally throughout the entire document and every aspect of its compliance program.
If read carefully, the DOJ seems to be presenting a window of opportunity between the time of the offense and the timing of the charging decision, during which the DOJ is specifically laying out for companies that when an offense occurs, companies have a lot more power than they may have originally thought to take lemons and to learn them, turn them into lemonade. The way to do that is through the remediation of your company's compliance program and the response to wrongdoing. Now, I would like to switch to another significant event that occurred on August 19th of this past year. That is the date when nearly 200 chief executives, including leaders of Apple, Pepsi, and Walmart, redefined the role of business and society and how companies are perceived by an increasingly skeptical public. Breaking with decades of long-held corporate orthodoxy, the Business Roundtable issued a statement on the purpose of the corporation, arguing that companies should no longer advance only the interests of stockholders. Instead, the group said they must also invest in their employees, protect the environment, and deal fairly and ethically with its suppliers. This shift comes at a moment of increasing distress in corporate America as big companies face mounting global discontent over income inequality, harmful products, and poor working conditions. The Business Roundtable did not provide specifics on how it would carry out its newly stated ideals, offering more of a mission statement than a plan of action. But the company's pledge to compensate employees fairly and provide important benefits as well as training and education. They also vowed to protect the environment by embracing sustainable practices across their businesses and to foster diversity, inclusion, dignity, and respect. It was an explicit rebuke of the notion that the role of the corporation is to maximize profits at all costs. This philosophy has held sway on Wall Street and in the boardroom for the past 50 years. Milton Friedman, the renowned University of Chicago economist, who is the doctrine's most revered figure, famously wrote in the New York Times in 1970 that the social responsibility of business is to solely increase its profits. The threshold has moved substantially for what people expect from a company. Klaus Schwab, the chairman of the World Economic Forum, said in an interview, it's more than just producing profits for shareholders. While the group cast the change in language as an embrace of new corporate ideals, it was also a tacit acknowledgement of the heightened pressure facing companies across the country, including many that signed the document. This statement represented an even broader shift, signaling companies' willingness to engage on issues of pay, diversity, and environmental protection. Several of the executives who signed the letter said the group would soon offer more detailed proposals, but the statement's lack of specific proposals also drew skepticism. So turning back to the initial question of the DOJ and the Ben Sikowski memo, the use of that word culture throughout the 2019 evaluation uh, of corporate compliance policies programs guidance document from policies and procedures to ensure culture from conduct from tone to the top, starting with the board of directors and flowing all the way down to the culture of the organization. Moreover, a company needs to actually assess its culture. The DOJ seems to have embraced culture as a key component of not only a compliance program, but also for a company's values going forward. The Business Roundtable has explicitly stated that the purpose of a corporation 
arguing that companies should no longer advance only the interests of shareholders. Instead, the group said they must also invest in employees, protect the environment, dare fairly and ethically with their employers. Culture should be viewed more than just some squishy social science concept. It is a foundational internal control that guides the behavior of employees. Without that internal control, all of the other rules, regulations, policies, and controls you have in place aren't going to be effective if the culture does not support them. So how can we accomplish both of these initiatives? I firmly believe that culture is the connective tissue that will allow ethics and compliance practitioners, as well as big business, to achieve these diverse but not divergent goals. Jay, in terms of the culture, uh, I know that that is something uh, Affiliated Monitors takes a look at on a, on a regular basis for corporations. Is the last point that you raised, though, which really ties culture to the Business Roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, are, are those discussions that you or your AMI colleagues are having with uh, senior managers, with business representatives? Is, is that something that is resonating in the marketplace that, as well? Yeah, I, I think you've touched on a good point, Tom, that um, when we've looked at what's happened in the current administration with the FCPA uh, enforcement, we've seen that the uh, government is and the regulators are trying to be more and more transparent about what needs to be done. They're trying to give corporations more of an opportunity to give their mea culpa and make changes ahead of times. And we've been seeing in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, a real shift in the business community when folks are looking at trying to not only measure and uh, figure out you know, what the state of their culture is, but they're also proactively trying to do this because they sense now that uh, there is an opportunity there to get, uh, get in front of these things. And if you do the calculus and if you decide to go to a regulator, you make a much better impression by being able to come in and saying we've investigated this situation and we've also uh, simultaneously remediated here. And here is what we found. And no longer is it the, the paper check the box program, but if you can actually go in there and demonstrate not only the culture of the company, but the effectiveness of your culture, I think uh, businesses will be in a much stronger position to move forward. So I'm going to uh, sit in on uh, this episode as well, and um, both of, uh, or, or I'm not going to go into uh, enforcement because I think Matt did a great uh, job on that. And what I want to talk about, though, is the continued work by not just the line prosecutors, but the professional class in the Department of Justice and uh, Department of Treasury that gave us what I think are three fabulous pieces of information. Uh, Jay really talked about uh, one of the ones I want to talk about, so I won't uh, reiterate that one uh, too much, except to just talk uh, or introduce the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance, which came from the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice. And it uh, did update several pieces of information the Department of Justice has given us, starting with the 2012 FCPA Resource Guide, uh, jointly issued with the Securities and Exchange Commission, through the 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, information that um, was released with the 
uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy in November 2017, then a couple of, uh, as that was incorporated into the U.S. Attorney's Manual, uh, and then um, how that was uh, updated. So uh, we have the first of three uh, documents, the uh, criminal divisions, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, that came out in April. And it asked the three, posed the three fundamental questions that Jay articulated. Is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Is the program applied earnestly and in good faith? And does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? And then gave a series of detailed questions with uh, great specificity that a compliance professional can utilize. Uh, That document, uh, the, rather, the next document, though, came from the Department of Treasury in June. And um, here we had the Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, release the framework for OFAC compliance commitments. It is a guidance for those entities seeking to comply with uh, sanctions through a sanctions compliance program. Um, if people don't know Mike Volkoff, they, uh, if they didn't know him before, they certainly know him after this week, and they're probably going to know a lot more of him going forward. Uh, as he was the lawyer for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman in the impeachment hearings. And Mike's not one to normally, uh, I would associate with Hyberpole, but even he called this a game changer. The OFAC um, framework strongly encourages companies to subject, uh, subject to its jurisdiction to take a risk-based approach to sanctions compliance by developing, implementing, and routinely updating a sanctions compliance program. OFAC recognized that all businesses are different in size, sophistication, product, services, customers, and counterparties. And to this end, that the compliance program is not an off-the-shelf cookie-cutter solution. OFAC related that each corporate compliance program should be predicated on and incorporate at least five essential components of compliance, management commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing, and training. OFAC said it would consider the robustness and implementation of each of these five prongs after conducting an, an investigation and in consideration of a civil penalty. Equally important, OFAC's uh, enforcement division, the Office of Compliance Enforcement and Enforcement, will also make a determination as to which, if any, of the five elements should be incorporated into a compliance program going forward as part of a formal settlement agreement. The OFAC framework states that OFAC will evaluate a subject person's compliance program in a manner consistent with the economic sanctions enforcement guidelines. So uh, this was OFAC's uh, take on a best practices compliance program, and it provided the anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance practitioner with a wealth of information. But that's only two of three, as we had a third uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs released in July, and this came from the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. And its uh, document was appropriately entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs in Criminal Antitrust uh, Investigations, following the first two. The antitrust compliance program provides significant uh, or significantly changed the calculus by which uh, the government prosecutes a criminal antitrust violation. Once again, Mike Volkoff said that since the 1990s, the antitrust Vision's policy regarding corporate compliance programs was generally fixed, given the ability of company to seek benefits under the leniency program. In this respect, the first reporting company would earn immunity and a de-trebling, love that word, of civil liability for antitrust cartel conduct. However, if your organization was not the first to self-report, you were basically SOL, and um, it was simply a pure race to see who would report, self-report rather, to 
the DOJ first. This changed uh, under this new uh, compliance program as it incentivizes companies to create effective antitrust compliance programs by creating credit by which the government may give at two two points, the charging stage uh, of an antitrust violation and then the sentencing stage. This means that the leniency program created in the 90s for the first time in self-reporting has been expanded so a company which is no longer the first to self-report, can receive a declination if certain criteria are met. But another way, good corporate citizens who are not the first uh, but do self-report, thoroughly investigate, extensively cooperate with the government, and have an effective compliance program under the antitrust compliance program guidance can receive a significant discount up to a deferred prosecution agreement for antitrust violations. Um, Jay, your uh, colleague, Jesse Kaplan, uh, managing director at Affiliated Monitor has previously said uh, that this compliance program did not come out of left field, and he believes it's consistent with where the Department of Justice is going, and that is the next step uh, after the leniency program, and frankly, in Jesse's opinion, has been so for several years. It provides incentives for other companies for make, truly making uh, sure that they have a, an effective antitrust compliance program and to ensure they are good corporate citizens going forward. So these three um, documents, two from the Department of Justice, one from OFAC uh, in the Treasury Department, emphasize uh, the need for an effective compliance programs uh, and give real credit uh, for uh, companies that remediate, excuse me, have an effective compliance program and then remediate. And taken together, these three documents really help uh, the compliance practitioner in a wide variety of areas. Each one has its separate uh, focus, of course, because they're separate laws, but taken together, it gives the compliance practitioner a wide variety of information from the types of parties you need to assess, focused by OFAC, to the data, analytics, and statistical analysis that the antitrust division uh, suggests you look at as a part of your compliance program. And of course, uh, if we factor in the criminal divisions, uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, as Jay talked about the culture aspect, you've really got the entire spectrum of a corporation and how a corporate compliance officer can look at the varieties of his compliance program. So uh, these three documents, uh, to me, really uh, are one of the highlights from the past year, uh, not really on enforcement and not really on regulation and perhaps not even commentary, but certainly good information uh, for the compliance practitioner. I think we're going to move to uh, shout outs and or rants. So uh, we'll start with Matt Kelly and then uh, move to the West Coast with Jay and then I'll finish up. So Matt, do you have a shout out or rant for us? Uh, I do. I have a rant against Attorney General William Barr. Uh, he gave two very inflammatory speeches uh, in, I believe, November, maybe one in October, one in November, but two speeches to very conservative right-wing audiences where uh, I just think what William Barr said was an atrocious abandonment of at least half of the country that might not bow down to the uh, cult of Trump and worship uh, the president. But Barr was turning around at every corner with these two speeches, talking about the importance of a unitary executive that is above congressional review, uh, about the secular left apparently overrunning the country, and he just sounded like one, yet another cranky old guy screaming from the front lawn at uh, people to get off of his lawn. Um, if, aside from the fact 
that uh, he has a job at taxpayer expense where he must represent all of the people, not just the people he agrees with politically to prosecute the people he doesn't. He represents the whole country, Mr. Barr, so get used to it and accept it. Um, what really galled me was his reimagination of U.S. history to fit his worldview. I will give you two examples. Uh, when he was talking to the Federalist Society, he was saying that the Revolutionary War was primarily against, quote, an overweening parliament, close quote. Um, the Declaration of Independence that I read and that I studied uh, was all about the overweening power of King George III, a powerful executive, and we rebelled against him because he would not let the colonies participate in the British Parliament, which is what they originally wanted to do. Uh, that was my first bone of contention with him. And then Barr went on to rant about independent agencies, which were first created during the Great Depression, which, of course, is code and a dog whistle for Great Depression, the 30s, Roosevelt, liberals, New Deal, bad. Isn't this awful? Well, except for the fact that independent agencies were first created in 1887 with the Interstate Commerce Commission or the FDA, which was created in 1906, or the Federal Trade Commission created in 1914, or the Federal Reserve created in 1913. And I could go on for a while punching very simple factual holes in what Attorney General Barr had been saying because he just thinks he is the smartest guy in the room. He is in love with his own ego and all the conspiracy theories he absorbs on Fox News. And this man is a terrible attorney general who really leaves so many people in this country feeling, frankly, vulnerable that he is going to abuse this country's prosecutorial power in the Justice Department to persecute fellow Americans for their political beliefs. It is shameful. And if he, this is what he believes, that's fine. Quit. Go work for a law firm like you used to, and you can sue people the old-fashioned way. But he should not be attorney general. It is disgraceful what he is saying. There you go. There's my rant. Now I'm going to take a deep breath and calm down. Jay Rosen, quite a rant to follow. Yeah, I, I don't know how I can do this, Matt. I'm just going to have to uh, jump, drop to the mundane world of sports. Uh, it is Friday morning, 847 on the West Coast as we tape this. And my little cell phone tells me that the New England Patriots will not re-sign Antonio Brown. And, uh, you know, Tom and I have had a back and forth over the past several weeks on our weekly podcast with uh, how the Houston Astros are following the New England Patriots uh, handbook of how not to be liked by your fellow uh, teams in the league. Uh, it was, you know, interesting that uh, the cult of Belichick thought that he could go out and get uh, Antonio Brown to march to the beat of the New England Patriots, and he couldn't. Uh, finally, the Patriots cut bait with him. But then when it became apparent that his contract was still going to be carried by the Patriots and they'd have to pay him and that a rash of industry of injuries have affected the wide receiving core. Uh, earlier this week, Christian Fourier reported that the Pats were once again uh, kicking the tires. And uh, I'm just getting tired of people and teams uh, saying that they're ethical and moral when it works for them. But when they need to worry about moving the ball, they change their tone. So I'm glad to see um, the fact that New England will not be re-signing A.B. And I hope uh, that this year 
starts to turn itself around offensively because I think that there may be a good reason why Tom Brady does not have a contract for the 2020 season. I'm out. So um, I was going to rant about the Houston Astros, but I think perhaps two sports ramps might be too much, too, too much for this podcast. I'll just know that the Astros have been accused of cheating uh, to win the 2017 World Series in the last two years as well, and it looks like they're guilty as hell. But I won't rant about that. I'll save that for another day. Actually, I'm not sure if this is a a rant or a shout out or perhaps just uh, some good advice. And that advice goes to our good friend, Elon Musk. I'm not sure where he is on your diaries, uh, but he's certainly right up there on the the list of my return phone calls. And I'm going to have to call Elon and explain to him that if you have a unbreakable uh, bulletproof vehicle that you're uh, unveiling to investors and indeed the greater public in a uh, televised press conference, uh, specifically with bulletproof windows, and you have a worker who is then challenged to throw a steel ball at the windows to uh, demonstrate their bulletproofedness by having them bounce off, and that same worker actually shatters the window, um, that's probably a QAQC problem, and you should not have tested that live uh, in front of um, Al Capone's uh, cellar vault, uh, as was done once before. And then uh, if that happens in the front window, do not have the same worker tell the same worker, well, must just have been a bad window. Let's throw at the back window and see what happens. And you shatter the back window. So um, if you're going to uh, do something on live television to prove the bulletproofness of your windows in your uh, bulletproof car, uh, make sure they're actually bulletproof uh, before you do so. So, um you know, I don't know, like I said, where Elon is on, on y'all's uh, phone uh, phone list, but uh, if you're talking to him before I talk to him, you might just pass that along. So, gentlemen, uh, this has been a great uh, part one of our two-part episode, and I look forward to seeing what our colleagues come up with. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special part one of our two-part podcast series on our year-end wrap-up of the Trump administration and compliance. I hope you'll join us again for part two, which will go up on Thursday, December 19th. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.